I will bless the Lord at all times. I love repeating phrases like this, uh, not just, I don't like, like the sound of my own voice, but because it reminds me how easy it is to forget the truths of scriptures, how, how easy it is for us to forget this truth, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's what David sings in Psalm 103. In Psalm 26, he sings this thing. He says, my foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. That's what we've been doing this morning. As we celebrate God's work, as we sing the truths of the gospel, as we read the very words of God in the Bible. And so as we continue in worship this morning, like we did last Sunday, and I mentioned this, I want us to step into this next gospel-shaping practice of giving, of blessing the Lord through our giving. Not because he needs our finances, because let's be real, they aren't even our finances, right? Ultimately, they are his. We bless the Lord through our giving because in doing so, we demonstrate our dependence upon him. Right? We declare that our confidence is not in our wealth or in our paycheck, but on him. We proclaim that our commitment to and alignment with God's mission, the mission of his kingdom as he works it out in the world through his local church, That's what we're committed to. We give as an act of worship, right? Redefining the basis of our trust, our confidence, our security as God and God alone. Amen, TVC? And so with that said, I want to invite us this morning to worship by giving, right? So to bless the Lord with our declaration that he is our confidence and our security. So all the different ways in which you can worship by giving are up on the screen. But I want to have you in the mindset with that same verse. Bless the Lord, O our souls, and forget not all his benefits. Now, I want us also to step into another gospel-shaping practice this morning. We talked about believing in the power of prayer, and so we take time on Sunday mornings to pray. We pray all throughout our service on purpose, not just as opportunities to transition from one thing to the other, but to remind ourselves that all that we are doing here is just... Fancy platform work, it's not the Spirit of the Lord working through us, amen? So TVC, would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we come before you this morning needy. Needy of your work in our lives as a community. Needy of your Spirit's encouragement and joy in our lives as we live out our faith in our homes and in our neighborhoods, at our jobs and at the grocery store, in our families, and to be honest with everybody that you put in front of us. Needy because we are human. And you have created us to need you, to be in relationship with you. Apart from you, we are unable to live the life you created us to live. We confess all the ways in which we deny our neediness, all the ways in which we walk in the self-sufficient delusion of the world. This morning, we confess a a false gospel of bootstraps and self-reliance that our lives too often preach. We confess and we repent. We turn back to you and we acknowledge you not only as creator and king, but as father and friend. This morning, we remember our neediness and We're grateful for it because by it, you remind us of our dependence upon you. By it, you shape us as a spirit-dependent family. 
We also thank you this morning and celebrate that spirit, the same spirit dependence in the, the global workers, your global workers that our church has sent out all over the world. And would you continue to enable and empower them to let their light shine in challenging contexts around the world? Lord, we pray that you would protect them, that you would give them open doors to talk about Jesus, that you would encourage them by letting them see the fruit of their labors, of their creative outreaches. Specifically this morning, Lord, we do pray for Danny and Lauren, who are leaving soon for this new assignment in the Middle East, Lord. I'm just so thankful, even hearing about the ways in which they served refugees in Greece and how you've shaped and cultivated in them. It's this love for displaced people. I pray that you would continue that love. You would continue to provide for them as they transition to the Middle East, as they study Arabic, immerse themselves in the culture, love the people that they're with. Would you direct their steps? as they follow your call to express the good news of Jesus through their work with and among refugees. But Lord, I also pray for those in our community. We continue to ask for your mercy in their lives, for those who are suffering here, physically, mentally, spiritually. We pray for your healing hand. Pray for you to work through your people here. Would you love and serve the family that you created here through the family that you created here. We also pray for the rest of our family in Christ, those who are serving you in the surrounding areas. I I think this morning of of Christ Community Church in Streamwood or our Village Church of Bartlett, different faithful outposts of your new creation life. We pray that you would continue to shape them and that community by your gospel in order to introduce others to and shape others by your gospel. And Lord, as we approach your word this morning, would you bless and empower the preaching of your word. Like if you impre- you've impressed on my heart this past week, a- apart from you, what I'm just doing up here is a mediocre speech, but it is by your spirit that you transform it to the preaching of your word. Would you change us this morning? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I didn't introduce myself earlier, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Solomon. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church, and I have the incredible honor and privilege to serve this particular community as the campus pastor here at TVC. And so if you don't know me, if what I just said is new to you, I want you to get to know me, and I want to get to know you. So please come after the service, come talk to me if you're here on campus. If you're watching online, please send me an email, comment, uh, message us on Facebook. We want to get to know you. I would love to get to know you more. As Good Friday and Easter approach on the calendar, as we sit in the season of Lent that we've been talking about, preparing for Jesus' resurrection by pausing in the moments that surround his crucifixion, this morning we continue in our series, The Upper Room, Five Hours with the Master. Spending time with Jesus and his disciples in this, this space that the Gospel of John creates from chapter 13 to chapter 17, where we feel time slow down. Right, we hear the countdown, the tick, tick, tick in Jesus' voice as the cross approaches. Five hours meant to prepare these men that Jesus loved so much for what would be some of the most agonizing 72 hours of their lives. Three days he would lay in the tomb, dead. No more stories, healings, comforts, no more object lessons, boat trips, or, or walking journeys. Three Days, 72 hours. 72 hours would mark this time between. 
time between Jesus' last last breath as their teacher, as their rabbi, and Jesus' first breath as their savior. 72 hours from the torture of the cross to the triumph of the tomb. 72 hours where they wonder, they think, they reflect, they cry, they scream, they hide, they try and go back to normal life. They're woken up by nightmares replaying over and over again the scene where they abandoned their Savior like a broken record. 72 hours where Jesus' words would keep interrupting their grief with flickers of hope. It was these 72 hours, these three days that Jesus is preparing his disciples for in these final moments of our text this morning, these five hours before he is arrested. It's after these words that I talked about last week, he's going to pray for them. He's going to pray for us, his disciples, knowing what lies before them, knowing what lies ahead for him. But now, in this moment, face to face with these men that he loved so much, these men that he (laughs) had been calling calling into his kingdom, these men that he has been frustrated with and faithful for, in this moment, he looks to strengthen them for the time between For these 72 hours where heaven and earth holds its breath, anticipating his next breath. It's that story that we're entering into this morning by reading our text, John 16, 16 through 33. So if you're tracking with us this morning, uh, you can open up your Bible, you can follow us along on the screen. But I want us to enter that story with that tone in mind. If you're here with us or watching online, I want encourage you to stand for the reading of God's word, and we're stepping into John 16, 16 through 33. When you get there, say amen. Amen. Love it. 16, 16 through 33. The scene opens up before us like this. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We we don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn. While the world rejoices, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. See, a a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. See, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. Now, I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. 
Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is God's word. You may be seated. The confusion in this conversation makes everything feel a little bit surreal in this moment. As strange as a dream where up is down, one plus one plus one equals one, and where messiahs die instead of wage war. But, but Jesus cuts through the confusion of the disciples by bringing everything into focus with these incredible promises. Promises that will come after his resurrection. Shock waves that will come after his history-making, eternity-shaking, death-defying resurrection. And there are three resurrection shock waves in this text that Jesus promises his disciples. They're up on the screen there for you. They are complete resurrection joy, unprecedented resurrection access, and true resurrection peace for all who believe in Jesus. This is how we're going to walk through the text. What Jesus is promising here is that on the other side of his resurrection, his disciples, those who truly follow him, can experience joy, enjoy access, and embrace peace. These three shockwaves, these three promises, are going to guide us through uh, as we walk through the scene with Jesus as he prepares his disciples for these 72 hours where they're going to be without him. They're actually going to be without his spirit as well with only the tiniest spark of hope that he lit for him, for them, in these five hours. So let's look at that first shockwave, promised after the resurrection, this complete resurrection joy that ripples from verses 16 through 22. You see, as we step into the beginning of this passage, we have to remember that Jesus has already used the language of resurrection as he's been talking with his disciples. Right? You might remember in 1419 where Jesus says this. He says, Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Way back in chapter 14, he's introducing the category of resurrection, not to discuss theology and kind of explain all that's going to happen, but to comfort his disciples. And he moves past it then to press his point of love and obedience. But now here in 1616, he returns to the topic of resurrection in order to once again comfort, but also to prepare his disciples. Look at how he moves into it in verse 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. In a little while. Soon, he explains. Very soon you won't see me anymore, which translation, if you've been tracking with Jesus this entire time, means I'm going to be dead. And then soon after that, you're going to see me again. Translation, I'll be resurrected. As we read the story, it's easy to forget just how crazy some of this sounds, how absurd some of these statements are for Jesus, how hard it is for these disciples to understand this. I mean, up until now, they barely have a category for a Messiah who dies, let alone a Messiah who comes back from the dead, which makes the next two verses pretty understandable if you understand that. Look at 17 and 18. At this, some of his disciples said to another, what does he mean? End of verse 18, we don't understand what he is saying. You see, it's not that Jesus hasn't explained it, right? If you've 
read through the Gospels, you know Jesus spends time throughout the three years he's with them, explaining, building up to this moment, talking about his death and his resurrection, and yet somehow the disciples have missed it in that whole time. So they're trying to make sense of what he said. They try to put the pieces together of his plan like a puzzle, and the question starts to circulate among them. Notice that the story doesn't tell us it actually bubbles up to Jesus. At at this point in the story, they keep their confusion and their questions to themselves. Maybe it's because they have seen how Jesus handled questions before and they're kind of nervous. Maybe it's because they're not really sure how to ask this question. Whatever the case may be, the question is actually dragged into the light by Jesus in the very next verse. Look at verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant? And then he repeats himself. You see, at this point, as good Bible readers, our antenna should be up, right? Because by 19, Jesus' statement has been repeated four times. And if you're reading for the first time, you're kind of like, man, this is, I know, I can just look up a couple verses. Why did you have to say it again? What we have to remember is that this is not just some boring or, or even weird quirk of the Bible to repeat things like this. Right? Whenever biblical authors repeat phrases or words, they're highlighting something important. Right? This is their way of underlining, italicizing, and bolding the thing in the text so that you can actually see and hear what they're trying to say to you. A little while, a little while, a little while, a little while. He's talking about his resurrection. We are being set up to think about the time between even as the disciples are confused there in the present. So Jesus draws the question out into light with a rhetorical question, right? Are you asking each other what I meant? And the reason I can call it rhetorical is because Jesus doesn't even take a breath before going into the next part. Look at verse 20. Very truly, I tell you, he knows that they don't understand. Right? So he brings their misunderstanding to the light and he clarifies it for them. And this is why I love that the Bible includes disciples like this. Right? Because these, guys, these are the guys that the, the Lord used to turn the world upside down for the gospel. <laughs> and they have questions. Like we have questions. And, and, and Jesus knows that they have questions. Jesus knows that we have questions, that sometimes questions that we're too afraid to ask. He also knows that weird, unsettled feeling we sometimes get in our relationship with him, this weird, unsettled feeling that we have trouble forcing into words and and maybe shaping into a question. And so Jesus knows and he draws it out so that he can answer. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Did you catch Jesus' answer? Right, this, is, this is kind of a total Jesus move right here, right? He doesn't actually answer their question. And in fact, we can know that he knows their question, right? It's not like he has amnesia because he just repeated their question. And this is just so like Jesus, right? He, he gives them what they thought they, or he gives them, instead of giving them what they thought they needed, he gives them what they actually need, right? Notice, he knows not just their question, but their hearts and what they're really wrestling with. That what they're really wrestling with is not just the logic of the kingdom, but the loss of their king. Right? Many times Jesus does the same thing with us, right? He doesn't directly answer our questions, but he always gives us what we need. And sometimes what we need most, like the disciples in this moment, is a higher vantage point. Right? Look at what he lays out for them. The world is going to rejoice, and you will weep and mourn. He's talking about his death. You will grieve. But there will be joy. 
And not just any joy, your grief will turn to joy. He's pulling out their perspective. The death and resurrection of Jesus here is not just substituting uh, joy and grief and pain. He's not just switching them out. He doesn't just trade our pain for his joy. What Jesus is saying is that my joy is going to transform, change, reform your grief. And he illustrates what he means here so that we don't lose what he's actually talking about. Look at the illustration he gives in verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now, I have what you might call secondhand experience with this illustration. I I was in the room when it happened twice. I'm told it's an experience of intense pain. Can I get an amen from all the moms in the room? An experience that builds up contraction after contraction culminates in a warrior of a woman participating with the creator of the universe and pushing through agony to bring another creation of God into the world. An experience that even sometimes threatens the life of that warrior and shifts her pain of pushing to the pain of recovering from a C-section like a warrior. But I'm going to stop right here and say it's an experience that I, and I know this is not the point of Jesus' illustration here, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this. It's an experience that I know some of you have never had and really want. Hear me when I say that Jesus knows that pain. That when he gives this illustration, he doesn't... He hears the cries and knows your tears. In those moments, though, he doesn't often give answers as to why something like that is happening. He always gives himself. And just like he didn't answer the disciples above with an explanation, but with a promise of joy, he walks with you even as you long for that experience. Never dismissing your struggle, but always promising the kind of joy that transforms your grief. Maybe not today. Maybe not in this life. But someday, I know that's not the point of Jesus' illustration here, but, but I would be doing pastoral malpractice if I didn't stop and recognize how me saying that illustration would hit some of you. Jesus uses this illustration to explain how grief is transformed into joy. And he references this experience of intense pain, and he explains that it's forgotten when that baby lays in their mother's arms. But I don't want you to misunderstand Jesus, right? It's not like he doesn't know that. I mean, there's not a woman in this room that has experienced that childbirth and said, yeah, I don't remember what that was like. It's not forgotten in the sense of amnesia. It's forgotten in the sense of diminished, dimmed, transformed into joy that your son, your daughter is finally here. You have no idea what you're doing, how to figure out how to know what they want, but they're here. Not that the pain wasn't real, or is no longer an issue, but that the very thing that produced pain now produces joy. Verse 22, so with you. This is why he's even given this illustration. Jesus says, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice. The very thing that gave you grief is about to bring you joy, and no one can take away that joy. And he drives the illustration home with this promise. No one can take away your joy. Now the cross. Now my death. Now grief, but resurrection is coming. 
I will see you again. And there will be joy. A joy that cannot be snatched away. Later, Jesus describes it as complete joy. Complete resurrection joy. Joy based not on circumstances, but on God's ways and work in the world. You see, Jesus is framing this time between of 72 hours with this higher vantage point of God's entire plan. And what we need so often from God in these difficult moments, <laughs> these difficult moments of our lives are not these mere answers, but his promise and his presence. Look again at verse 22. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. Did you catch the difference there? You see, earlier Jesus said, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. But now Jesus changes the subject. I will see you again. You see, TVC, we need to remember that Jesus sees us in our pain and our suffering. Jesus sees us. He knows pain. He knows our pain. And he doesn't stand far away from that pain. He steps right into it. He steps right into it and he sits down On this side of resurrection, because of resurrection, because of what he went through in the cross, we can have confidence that though pain is part of this world that has been distorted and broken by sin, it is never for nothing. We may never know why on this side of eternity, but we do know that there is purpose in it. We just sang about that. And he promises to be with us in it because he is a savior who knows suffering. And unlike so many people who sit with people in their suffering and try to move past it quickly, Jesus sits. And by his presence, whether slowly or quickly, but always perfectly timed, he turns grief into joy. And in that moment, as he changes it, there's a question that that pops up for us that I want to submit to you for consideration, for reflection. How might it be, maybe just maybe, Can we imagine a way in which our now suffering is being transformed into someday joy? What might it look like if we considered whether our now suffering is being transformed even then into someday joy? Not to move quickly past the pain, but to consider what it looks like to trust him with that information, with that transformation, with that moment. These aren't easy questions, and and to be honest, Jesus' answer is not an easy answer, but it is the only answer to the grief of the disciples, the pain of their confusion, to our grief and pain as we consider God's ways in the world and don't fully understand. We can say things like the end of verse 18, we don't understand what he is saying and we don't understand what he is doing, but say, unlike the disciples in this particular moment, we trust him. The resurrection which produces a shockwave of complete resurrection joy. Now I want to move into our second shockwave, but it's not so disconnected from our first because it it talks about joy, but it has a different effect in verses 23 through 28. You see, this second shockwave of unprecedented resurrection access is introduced in verse 23 when Jesus says, In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. He's still talking about joy, but he's referring to his resurrection, and he takes them past their grief. He ties their joy 
to prayer. Right? He's refocusing them. Same phrase, very truly I tell you, which tells us he's starting to move in a different direction, and he starts to talk about prayer. He remembers their inability to ask him their questions, and like a good teacher, he uses that to segue into another teaching moment. In that day, post-resurrection, you won't need to ask me anything. You'll understand. You'll get what I'm telling you right now, and your joy will overwhelm your grief and your confusion. But that joy, which is what this section is talking about, is inextricably tied to prayer. Prayer with unprecedented access to God. This is the kind of prayer that Jesus has been talking about for a while, if you've been following us in this series. Right, he talks about it in chapter 14, in chapter 15, and now again in chapter 16. But this time, he's talking about prayer in Jesus' name because of joy. Prayer in the name of Jesus, which completes your joy. And like we talked about before, but I want to make very clear, there are two extremes that actually show up when we start talking about prayer in Jesus' name that we need to be very careful to avoid. And to avoid those extremes, we must see that when Jesus is talking about prayer in his name, he neither under-promises nor over-delivers. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, but I, when I worked in retail, that was, we were saying that to each other all the time. Don't under-promise, over-deliver. Don't over-promise and under-deliver. The exact opposite. Don't set expectations too high. Don't get their hopes up. And then when you actually deliver, exceed their expectations. But here Jesus doesn't do either of those. And here's what I mean when I say that. Jesus is not trying to keep expectations low when he talks about it in Jesus' name, right? This isn't some generic promise. Look at the text. The Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So pray. Ask. Knowing that the power of prayer is not in some fancy schmancy words, but in the love of your Father. In other words, the power of prayer is in the one to whom you are praying. It's incredible. He sets a high bar. Whatever you ask. But, so he's not under-promising. He's not trying to undersell what this is. But he's not over-delivering in this moment either. Right? We have to keep our expectations aligned with Jesus' expectations. He is not trying to exceed our false expectations, trying to paint his name as some magical, powerful incantation to kind of get us whatever we want. There's this library book we just got. Um, me and Lucia and Lily go to the library uh, almost every week, and we take out as many library books as we possibly can, which this time meant 16 books. And we got a book called The Magic Word. And in this book, the, you can anticipate what they're trying to teach children, right? How to say please. That's not the word this child uses in this book. The word is alakazumba. Never thought I'd say that up here. But throughout the story, this is how this child gets all these things. Eventually, there's a water slide in his house. There's walruses chasing all the people he doesn't want around. He has cookies for days and a robot that brings him cookies in. Just magic word. This isn't what Jesus is talking about when he says, in my name. It's not some magic word to give us what we want. The Father will only give us what we ask in Jesus' name what we ask according to his character, according to his authority, as we live in relationship with him. Which should encourage us to find out what in the world that means. To read the Bible and figure out who God calls himself, who he describes and reveals himself to be. What is his character? What does it mean to live in relationship with him? If Jesus just said, you will get whatever you ask in my name, we should figure out what it means to pray in his name, what it means to pray according to his will. And where do we find that? But his word. 
These are the two extremes we need to avoid. And in these verses, Jesus is tying these effects of his resurrection together. The first promise of joy to the second promise of access. His resurrection intertwines joy with prayer through intimate relationship with him. Or in other words, if we've been tracking with the chapters up until this point and how Jesus has been building up to this moment, we have to understand that true joy is inextricable from. You cannot remove it. You cannot pull it apart from intimacy with Jesus in obedience and prayer. Right? Prayer in Jesus' name means we know and submit to who Jesus is and what he wants to do in the world. It means we love Jesus, which Jesus has already said in these few chapters that it is tied to obedience to him. So he ties up all that he has said in this moment with this verse, describing this true and complete joy that begins with faith in him, that is built upon by loving Jesus, which means we obey Jesus and is marked by asking in his name, which means we have a relationship with Jesus. To say it in another way, joy is not some uh, extra topping or some bonus gift I'm trying to give you here. Just say, hey, like, come to Jesus and you'll have joy. In the context of what we've been talking about, joy is fundamentally tied to a relationship with Jesus that is marked by obedience and prayer. We shouldn't expect joy if our relationship with Jesus is not consistent. If we are annoyed with obedience, going through the motions like, we just have to check the box. We shouldn't expect joy if our prayer life is at zero. If we so easily admit to each other how hard prayer is and then do nothing to try to grow in that prayer. I know that's a little more direct than I usually am, but I want us to recognize and tie and inextricably tie the joy that Jesus promises to life with him. Not just as a byproduct, but actually stepping into loving relationship with Jesus through obedience, and actually engaging in prayer. Not to get joy, but that Jesus is saying, this is the way the world works. This is the way our relationship works. What generates joy? What changes grief into joy? The answer the text gives us is a healthy and vibrant relationship with Jesus that is marked by obedience and by an ever-increasing and fruit-producing habit of prayer. A healthy and vibrant relationship with Jesus marked by obedience and by prayer. So like Jesus says, ask. Right? On this side of the resurrection, precisely because Jesus has come back to life, ask. And ask in Jesus' name. Ask to bring glory to God. Ask him that he might help you to do his will. Ask him to produce fruit in your life. Ask him to help you, to help us as a community to obey him out of love. Ask for more faith. Ask for him to, to give us a deeper love for each other and for those that the Lord calls us to in Streamwood and in our neighborhoods. Ask according to who God is and what he's like, according to the, how the Bible has revealed himself to be. Jesus continues, because we're not done with this second point here, to clarify this unprecedented resurrection access. In verse 25, he says, Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language. I'll tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Okay, Jesus, as you're wrapping up, as Jesus wraps up what he's saying, he's starting to clarify what's going to happen after the resurrection. He clarifies about the Father. He clarifies that it's going to affect how they will pray, that it changes to whom they pray. 
But he says, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And I want us to catch this here because he's not trying to play messenger between us and God. Right? Jesus says, in my name doesn't mean that there's going to be a distance from God and we have to tell Jesus so that he can then tell the Father and relay the message. Look at verse 27. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. TVC, as Christians, we have direct access to God the Father because of Jesus' death and resurrection. The Father loves us because we are united with Christ. We are in him because we have a relationship with Jesus, because we love him. We believe that what he says is true. But that belief and that love does not generate the Father's love for us. He loved us first. I mean, that's the reason that Jesus is even here in the first place. Now, what I'm talking about doesn't mean that um, you don't ask Jesus anything, right? Because then I'm going against what the rest of this text has said. He's still God. It also doesn't mean that Jesus is not interceding or praying for us. But what it does mean is that prayer is not a game of telephone between the members of the Trinity. Right? This is the benefit of unprecedented resurrection access. We don't have to pass a message like we do in telephone person to person. We don't have to hope and wonder what our message was when it got there. Hope that it was translated correctly. No, direct access is our privilege because Jesus died on the cross, came back to life 72 hours later. And and often when I pray, I think about this, I'm reminded that what 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 I'm doing in that moment is a blood-bought privilege. Have you ever thought about that, TVC? That, That prayer is a privilege, a blessing, a gift that Jesus died for us to have. The access to the throne room is not just about salvation and some abstract theology that affects you only in the afterlife. It is about living life with God here and now. As a preview for and an anticipation of a time when we will live with God there and then in the new heavens and the new earth. But it is about living life with God here and now. It's a blood-bought privilege. Look at verse 28. This is why I can say that. Jesus immediately says, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Jesus summarizes his mission here. It feels a little odd. Like what? His mission is to save his people by becoming a human being, living life that we were supposed to live and didn't, and then now about to die the death we were supposed to die for the punishment for our sin, and then coming back to life three days later, going back to the Father to make it all possible for us to have a relationship with him. A relationship that's marked by prayer. A blood-bought privilege. I mean, do we really realize that in Jesus, God has kind of given us a set of keys to the throne room of God? Right, like Hebrews says, draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Do we act like that's true? I mean, TBC, I can tell you right now, if Bill handed me the keys to his Camaro, I would enjoy all the privileges that go with driving that monster. Why don't we act like that when God hands us a set of keys to his throne room? Why don't we pray like we actually have this unprecedented resurrection access to God himself? What are we doing with it? This resurrection has given us this privilege of prayer, this this access, an access marked by and resulting in, Jesus says, complete resurrection joy. And to be honest, these two shockwaves would be more than enough to make the, the resurrection absolutely incredible, save alone the fact that we have a relationship with God the Father in the first place. But there's one more shockwave in this text that Jesus is working up towards, true resurrection peace. 
You see, in verses 29 through 33, Jesus wraps up his explanation of what's about to happen the same way that he started it, by promising peace. Do you remember what he said in chapter 14? Do not let your hearts be troubled. That's how he started this whole conversation. And he comes back to it again here in this final promise. But before we get there, look at the response the disciples give Jesus in verse 29. He starts talking about asking in the Father's or in Jesus' name and, and what that means that he's not playing go between. And this is what they say. Jesus said, Now you are speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need anyone to ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Jesus, we get it. We understand. Oh, man, I'm just so glad that you changed your tactics here and explained everything so easily. You know everything. We don't need to ask you questions. <laughs> We believe it proves that you came from God. Man. The problem is that Jesus has not been focusing on his coming to earth this entire time. He's actually been focusing on his soon-to-be departure. And the issue he has wanted them to see is not that they are asking their questions, but that they are misunderstanding his answers. In this overconfident and ignorant sort of way, they're repeating Peter's mistake from chapter 13. If you remember, Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. His overconfidence is answered by Jesus in a a pretty exposing kind of way that he would do the exact opposite of what he just said. Not only would Peter not lay down his life in that moment for Jesus, but he would deny him three times. And now here in 16, 29 through 30, we experience that overconfidence again. We get it now, Jesus. At best, they don't, they're, they're ignorant to what they say they understand. At worst, they're pretending to understand just to kind of move things along. Their immature faith, the text says, is grounded in two statements. Jesus knows everything, and he doesn't need anyone to ask him questions anymore. And their focus is on possibly the least significant thing that Jesus has said this entire time. <laughs> the fact that he anticipated their question and called them out on it. And, and this is what made them believe. And look what they say they believe. We believe that you came from God. That's it? Have you been listening to anything else I've been saying? You can almost see them smiling and nodding at each other, man. Like, oh man, this has been so hard and now we figured it out. But they have missed not only Jesus' death and resurrection, but even in this moment, they've actually missed the promise of the Spirit. Right? Jesus, we get it. You don't need to send a Spirit that guides us into all truth. We got it. And so Jesus responds, Kind of like he did to Peter. Do you now believe? Like it, Jesus is more frustrated than relieved in this moment, if you haven't noticed. right? The doubt that his words betray, they can even seem like a surprise, unless we remember Peter's response, and even remember this pattern that shows up in the Gospel of John over and over again, where, where the disciples enthusiastically agree with Jesus. They even express incredible truths about him, and then turn around and act in the exact opposite way. And just like with Peter, in this moment, Jesus cuts through what they say. He shows them what they actually believe by talking about what they will actually do. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And to to be honest, though this verse is kind of dark, I find a lot of comfort in this verse. You see, part of what makes the story of God's people, the history of his church, so incredible is that it's, from the very beginning, God uses people like this 
weak and faithless people to build his kingdom, to build his church. The incredible multiplication of God's church in history in the book of Acts could not be attributed to how much faith or courage these disciples had. The credit belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. Working by his spirit in these faithless disciples. Each of them scattered, gone, abandoning Jesus in his darkest moment. But you know who didn't abandon Jesus? His father. And in this moment, the faithfulness of God is held up against the faithlessness of his followers. Later on in the New Testament, Paul will say, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And it comforts me because I, confession time, am so often faithless. And he never forsakes me, TBC. He never leaves me. Even when we are faithless, he will never leave us. He will prune us. He will discipline us. He will shape us. He will test us. But he will never leave us. The entire team that Jesus used to change the world was made up of these faithless believers that God, by his mercy, mercy transformed them into faithful followers on mission with the gospel by his spirit. And so even reading this, what I was wrestling with this week is, is I want us to learn from them, to learn from their mistakes and their misunderstanding, to beware the arrogance that mistakes our understanding of Jesus as more mature than it actually is, to be humble, humble enough that Jesus by his spirit can grow us with his truth through the community of faith. It's why I love this, this quote from a commentary I was reading this week written by Leon Morris. He says, the church depends ultimately on what God has done in Christ, not on the courage and wit of its first members. And I'll add, not on the courage and wit of its current members. It's why we so badly need the final verse of our text this morning. Why we so badly need this final promise of true resurrection peace. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All that Jesus has said, all that he has been working to is exactly what he started with, peace. Right? A peace on the other side of the cross, on the other side of resurrection. You see, it was by his cross and resurrection that Jesus showed that what he did, that he actually did indeed overcome the world. And so here, as the cross approaches, Jesus looks past the betrayal of the disciples in this moment. He looks past their abandonment, and he sees their restoration. In the very next sentence, after he has just showed them that they would desert him, he talks about peace that he's giving them. That is grace in and of itself. He's encouraging them. And he does so in a very real and unfortunately atypical way for many Christians these days. Because he tells it like it is. He says, you will have trouble. You see, Jesus never promises the absence of trouble or suffering. You will have trouble. He's also not trying to get you to get some kind of anti-emotional faith where suffering never moves you or never affects you. You will have trouble. What, What he is promising is that suffering doesn't get to have the last word. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Be courageous. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Take 
heart. Keep your eyes on me. You see, Jesus promises both trouble by saying you will have trouble and peace in the trouble as the one who will be victorious in the most upside-down way possible. In an execution on the cross. Proven right 72 hours later by his resurrection. You see, within the next few hours, the disciples would abandon Jesus. Right? They would watch as he was nailed to a cross, as he was buried in a tomb. They would be racked with the guilt and the torment of their fear and their cowardice. And yet he encourages them here, before it all happens, by telling them that it will happen. I have told you these things. I've told you about your abandonment. This is why I love grammar. So that, this is why I told you this, so that you might have peace in me. Right? So that when it happens, you will know I told you this was going to happen. That I set this all up, the sending of the Spirit, the work of the cross and resurrection, knowing that you would do this. Ready to extend mercy and grace. You see, true resurrection peace begins with faith. Right? You can't, can't get it wrong, but it is faith that is God-given faith. And yes, it is faith that is built on built upon with loving obedience and intentional pursuit of Christ. But again, it is empowered by God's Spirit. We have to remember what Jesus said in the last few chapters. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my, in my love. All of this builds up, builds up to this moment, this kind of peace that he's talking about, this true resurrection peace. But true peace doesn't ignore trouble. Right? We should expect hostility. There's been actually a, a, a sermon preached on that by Pastor Kyle a few weeks ago, to expect opposition. Both from people who are in captivity to sin, who don't understand Jesus, but of the world, as well as the cosmic forces that keep them in that captivity. We pray against the power of evil, the prince of this world. Remember, Jesus talks about that. And our obedience to Jesus is how we fight against that evil. We preach our, the gospel to those who are held captive by sin, just like we once were. We take heart, we're courageous, we share the gospel boldly, on purpose, empowered by the Spirit, pointing people to Jesus because of the peace that God gives us. We do all of this like the disciples on this side of resurrection, right? Having experienced these these shockwaves of resurrection, right? This complete resurrection joy, unprecedented resurrection access, True resurrection peace. Joy that can never be taken away that is founded upon Jesus' death and resurrection. Access to God made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection. Unexplainable but deep peace grounded in Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching and our faith are useless. That's why Jesus spent so much time on his resurrection, because it is central to everything we believe, central to everything I have said this morning, central to everything that is in this Bible, that proves what, what this Bible says is true. It sends shockwaves throughout history and in our lives. We can't get around it. We have to deal with the resurrection of Jesus. You see, Jesus said in John eleven twenty five 25, these words, I am the resurrection and the life. And so as we come to a close this morning, I want these words to fill your mind and your heart as we pause to pray, to process, to reflect, to 
Jesus is holding out these promises, right? These resurrection promises as the resurrection in the life. He holds out joy and access and peace. TVC, what could it look like to live in grief-turned joy? How, how would our lives look different if we actually access the blood-bought privilege that we have to approach God himself? What would a life of deep and abiding peace even feel like? Look to the resurrection and the life. Believe, trust, take heart in every difficult circumstance. Jesus has overcome the world. And on this side of resurrection, he holds out this joy, this access to God, this peace because of his death and his resurrection. As we pray, I want you to think through that. Reflect on that. I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pause and pray this morning. Father God, we approach your throne, I mean this morning, with awe. In awe of this blood-bought privilege that we have, this access we have because of what Jesus did on the cross and out of the grave 72 hours later. We pray that you would continue to shape us as a community who obeys you who loves you and each other, who seeks to remain in you, living according to your will. Would you enable and empower us to bring you glory through every act of faithfulness? Would you make us fruitful? Would you prune us that we might be faithful? We trust you. We trust you even as we Remember that you were the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And we pray that you would ground us with the peace that passes all understanding, a deep and abiding peace that holds on to you in all suffering and trouble, a peace that tells us that you're holding on to us in our suffering and our trouble. Help us to take heart, trusting in the power of your resurrection.